Hey guys, welcome to the next episode of the Refuse to Lose podcast. This is our 10th episode and a very special one for me personally. In this episode, I'm chatting with rugby league legend Preston Campbell, a Dalian medalist with the Sharks and a premiership winner with the Panthers. But anyone who knows Preston will tell you that his greatest achievements are off-the-field achievements. In this podcast, Preston speaks openly and honestly about his multiple suicide attempts while still playing in the NRL and how he overcame that mental anguish to become one of the most charitable and respected athletes in Australian sport. He also speaks about the kill him with kindness mantra he has used to navigate a world that hasn't always been kind to him. Preston has changed the lives of many young men and women around the country, including myself. A program he set up at the Gold Coast Titans gave me my first journalism cadetship and helped me get the job I have now at Channel 9. We also have a bit of fun as well. Preston shares some stories about the many famous people he's met over the years, including the Queen, David Beckham, and the one and only Muhammad Ali. I hope you get as much out of this chat as I did. And remember, if you or anyone you know is struggling to cope, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Enjoy the chat with Preston Campbell. Preston Campbell, welcome to the Refuse to Lose podcast. It's a pleasure having you on, mate. Do you remember, uh, I don't know if you probably do remember, but uh, 10 years ago, we actually sat down for an interview. I was a uni student. It was the first interview I ever did uh, with a sports star. And here we are 10 years later. I don't know, you probably won't remember that, but I was... 10 years, yes. Oh, well, mate, this is the second one we've had. So I remember the first one. I, I remember a uh, fresh face. You're still fresh face. Still pretty young. <laughs> I don't know about that. But um, yeah, you definitely come a long way. But it's it's good to sit down with you again, mate. See see where you're at. Life's changed a bit for you, mate. In that in that ten years, you were still playing back then, and now you're a you're a grandfather. You're just telling me. Yeah, yeah. I've got a granddaughter. She's um, seven and a half months now. Yeah, beautiful girl. Um, being a grandparent is a is an amazing feeling. It's it's one of those things, you know. Um, you hear a lot of people who are grandparents. They lo- they love the fact that they can um, be with their with their grandchildren, but also be able to give them back. I don't want to give my daughter granddaughter back. You know, she's she's so beautiful. But yeah, it's, it has been been a long time. It's a fair bit. I've learned a fair bit. Um, when we talk about ten years ago, two thousand and ten, I think it was, we fell one game short of the grand final. Um, my in my second last year, the Gold Coast Titans in um, 2011. I won't talk too much about that. Probably wasn't the best <laughs> best year, um, you know, for my footy career or, or for the Gold Coast. Um, the one and only wooden spoon that we've we've gotten, but it's 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 been quite a journey since since finishing football up. Um, plenty has happened. Ten years ago, well, this year's been the ten year anniversary of the All Stars and. Um, you know, I'm still in the community doing some great work and um, I'm learning stuff every time I'm out doing something. And, and look, rugby league is – well, rugby league was a small percentage of my life and what I'm doing now is a far cry from um, what I was doing as a player. And, and, and as I mentioned, it just – it's given me so much. I, I, I can't believe even still now, even the game has given me plenty. We'll go through all of that. I want to go through the career a little bit and, and, and into what you're doing now. And But the, the first thing I, I 
you just let me know that uh, you, your little granddaughter, she's a she's a redhead. Yes, she is. <laughs> Which you don't see. Uh, not too many. No, not too not. many, especially with a, uh, an Aboriginal grandfather. No. With a, the complexion of your, the dark hair. Yep. And she's a little redhead. Well, look, when I'm walking around the shops with her, people get a, they, they have a double take. They look twice. You know, says, what's this fella doing with this little girl? <laughs> You know, so you get, you do get the looks, but um, it's it's one of those things. Very very rare it is, but every now and again you, you're going to get get somebody with red hair. I've got a sister; she's got red hair, um, and when I say red, like she's fiery red hair. And um, every now and again, um, well, it's her grandmother. Her grand, grandmother's a strawberry blonde. You know, so she's got a bit of red in her hair. As I was saying to you, my uh, my mum is a you know, full redhead as well. Yeah. And, but my sister, yeah, you know, my dad, he's same complexion as you. And then my sister looks nothing like yeah, like mum. She's dark, yeah, well, curly hair. So it's the same kind of thing. Yeah. But you're um you you just tell me as well. Your your oldest fella, Jaden, he's playing footy. He's he's taking up the the kind of mantle and he's having a run around with Burley and doing a bit of trialing with the Titans as yep. well. Well, he's he's been been lucky. He kind of broke onto the scene a couple of years ago. So he, he played with the Colts uh, for Burley. He was meant to play for them this year, but he captained them last year. Um, and the year before, he had a few games with the Colts. And unfortunately, you know, given the situation at the moment with, with COVID, um, they haven't been able to play too many games. And he, he hated it. He hated it. And he was just driving him mad. But... He's back now playing with Burley and um, Gold Coast Titans have got got their eye on him at the moment. He he's just he's always been a, um, you know one of those typical young boys that just loves rugby league. He grew up with it, obviously, um, with me with with my career. But um, I tell people, and this is you know I did love rugby league, but he loves it so much more than what I did. Yeah, and I think um, he he's got. He's got the the talent to be able to do it, um, and you know it's just a mental. You know he's got the right people around him. I'm thinking I I try not to get too much into it. I just try to stay stay back as much as I can because I know there are plenty of people out there um, in the system that are able to support him, and he's happy. And that's the main thing. I just figure if if he needs something from me, he will come see me. What's he? I haven't seen him since he was probably seven years old. They tell me he's he's taller than you. Yeah, yeah he's, he's taller. taller than you. Yeah. He's he's probably about same. He's a bit thin as well. And I think I think at the moment he weighs in. Um, I think I might be heavier than him to be honest. <laughs> he weighs in at about seventy six, seventy seven kilos, which isn't too bad. But in in today's game, um, when you talk about today's game, that's still pretty pretty light, pretty small. Um, I, it was a lot easier. When I first started back in '98, when I say easy, I mean it was still hard, but there wasn't this. Um, you didn't need to be the biggest bloke on the field, you know. And I played wing, I played fullback, so I was quite, quite protected. But these days, you, it's really, really hard to avoid that contact, you know. And um, wait, what way were you playing it back then? Well, I, I, I debuted. I was about 62 kilos. 62. Yeah, so wow. and I tell people that, but it's not something that you even think about. Um, back then it was weight. Weight wasn't a massive, massive thing, you know, where today you know, there's so much around nutrition, there's so much about strength, where back then you, know, you can get by with your, with your talent and if you just had a big heart and got in and out of game, you were more than, more than welcome in the game. 
Can you believe yet yeah, some of the, the size of the wingers now, mm. what they look like compared to uh, – I've seen footage when you first started playing, yeah. Yeah, as you said, 62 kilos. They're 105 now. Like, Can you believe how much it's kind of changed in that, that short oh, period mate, of time? Yeah. Well, it's that thing, and I think the Broncos, Broncos were the one of the first clubs to bring that in. I remember um, facing up against Wendell Saylor. You, you had me up against Wendell. And then on the other side, um, you had another small bloke, Aaron. I can't remember Aaron's last name, but he was a little bit um, bigger than me, but he was up against Lottie Takiri, you know. So you had two huge wingers against two smaller wingers. So I think that's where um, it first started to come in, in the in the late 90s, early early 1000s. And um, it's changed so much, as you said, you know, because of the game, it, it calls for those big wingers now. Not only can they they jump, um, they're very athletic. You know, they're big enough to take that first run from from uh, of the set, and you know, and be effective. When smaller blokes these days uh, are less effective, and that makes a big difference in the in the game. But you really need a good start to that set, don't you? But you always you always played above your weight, and people always talk about your heart and the kind of uh, I guess mental toughness you had to, to give away so many kilos and, and play against guys so much bigger than you. Was it ever a factor in your mind? when you Did you ever think about the kind of start you were giving away? Oh, look, I, I was always nervous. You know, it's really, really hard to get past that sort of stuff when, you know, you get told a lot that you're, you're small in, in comparison to other players, you know. So it's hard, hard not to think about it. But, you know, you try to... Um, rely so much on on the work that you've done, you know, and you you believe in in your um, your ability. It's one of those things. And and look, being a smaller player, um, I've, I I learnt instinct. You know, get away from big players to find find not easy ways, but better ways to be be effective. Um, so if I'm running the ball instead of running straight at somebody, obviously I had to. Um, develop a step, you know. So my agility is something I worked a lot on. So not just to avoid avoid those tackles, but to be able to get into a position where I can, um, where I did get tackled, I can get up pretty quick, fairly quick, you know. So being small is um, sometimes has its disadvantages, but um, I didn't try to look at it too much. Um, as I mentioned, it, I built instinct, getting away from people, and and you just become smarter, you know. And it's one of those things that um, a lot of lot of young young boys and girls need to need to realise. You know, you know, I get asked a lot of, or to talk to talk to boys and girls that are really small and being told that they're too small to play rugby league. And what I say to them is just being small is 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 good. You have an advantage. They need you on on their team, but they need you to work hard. You know, so work on your agility, work on the things that um, that you're good at, but also work on the things that you're not real good at. What about, I guess, the game now is changing a little bit and trying to get players, small players, back into the game. I mean, you'd like to see that I, with some of the rule changes that they're they're trying to they've realised that maybe you know we need to drop the interchange, we need to have these set restarts and stuff like that to get these small guys back because it's such an important part of the game. You'd like to see that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we, we can talk about the game. It needs to be exciting. Um, I'll be honest, a lot of the games that, that you do get to see is it's just the same thing over and over again, you know, and there is an exciting moment 
in within this game every now and again. But um, for the for the viewer, it's it's difficult to watch sometimes. I think because they they just want to see a chip over the top, you know, and they they want to want somebody to you know risk you know do a risky play, and but it's just something that. Um, they can't really do, you know. They talk a lot about one percenters these days, and and look, every now and again, like I said, you, you see this moment. Um, just one example was um, Ryan Pappenhausen last last week when when playing against the Knights, he got got the ball and he he ran almost hundred meters, you know. And that's that's awesome. Small Blake, he's capable of doing that um, because I think because of the some of the rule changes, you know, some of these guys that get really tired because they can't chase the kick, and it just opens it up for the boys, you know. But um, I think the more the more they they um, get used to these rules, the more we'll see see of that. One of my favourite players at the moment is Appy Coruscant, and he's playing so well for mm. Penrith, and Penrith are firing at the moment. And the last time Penrith looked this good. You were in a Penrith jersey, yep. and you guys went on to to win the comp in two thousand and three. I'm, I'm keen to know what you think of the Panthers this year from what you've seen. Yeah, they're playing awesome. They got a lot of energy, and they're just playing with confidence. Um, I don't know what the average age is, but I think when we were playing, it was like it was like twenty four. You know, you had a couple of older blokes like myself, Ryan Girdler, Luke Prittis. Um, but I think yeah, the average was twenty three, twenty four years of age, and. Um, it's it's not the same the team now because they they just their energy is is just unbelievable you know and and as I mentioned they're playing with a lot of confidence but that um, and they they're playing with a lot of belief in each other you know Nathan Cleary's leading them around amazingly and um, you've got guys on the edge that are just willing to put their bodies on the line and very very mobile. Um, you know, back in two thousand and three, we had two very mobile edge runners in in Joey Nullivan and Tony Tony Pulitua, You know, so it's very similar in a in a way. Um, but they're yeah, they're just there for each other, the Panthers. You know, and and you know they got the skill and you you got the right people leading at the right at the moments that they need to need the lead. You know, Happy Corrissow, as you mentioned, he's one of my favourite players to watch because he's he's not the biggest guy. And he has a go, but he's he's just a clever player. You know, he's a real footballer. What do you remember about 2003? It's probably a long time ago, but I I, I vividly remember it because I was a Panthers fan, and I I don't know, I can still name the whole 17 that played yeah. in that grand final. <laughs> I can still, uh, but like, can you remember much about that that time? Because you guys kind of came from nowhere, didn't you? You yeah. weren't, weren't expected to to be a, a contender that year, were you? No, no, not really. No, not really. I think they were sort of in a in a rebuilding stage. Um, I think the year before they finished second last. The year before that they were wooden spooners. So there wasn't much expected, um, you know, well from from the game in general, and and then from um, the the club. When you look at the community, the Panthers Panther supporters, they they were expecting a um, a grand final win every year, premiership. But I think um, for myself personally, it was just one of those those years where I was just wanting to get back into football, playing rugby league. The year before wasn't the best year for me, so I was just looking forward to playing football and and um, getting back into playing NRL level. Uh, the year before, 
2002, I, I spent the majority of the time in, in the um, New South Wales Cup, you know, so I worked really hard in off-season to, to get a start and <clears throat> was lucky to get a start on the wing in the first game and um, I was just I was just ready to go. You know, I w- wasn't expecting too much. I was just happy to be back playing playing NRL. Do you remember the the kind of high at the end of the year, the the, the feeling of winning that premiership? Because uh, you touched on before the year before wasn't the, the best year of your life, and how quickly it turned around, and how I guess yeah, you you must have been so elated with how it finished. Oh, look, look, looking back now, it's it was amazing. It was an amazing feeling, and looked. Uh, Understand that I've been able to win a premiership. You know, so many people hope to win a premiership, um, but never get that chance. I feel very fortunate to be able to do that. At the time, Jake, probably I didn't feel um, that euphoria. You know, I was happy that we won, very, very happy that we won. But I didn't, um, I didn't celebrate to the point where, you know, you know, I probably probably only following the team. That, that night they didn't have a drink, you know. So I was lapping all up. I was enjoying the, the occasion, but I probably didn't appreciate it the, as much as I, I, I probably could have, given given where I was at my life in my life, you know, personal life. You know, as a rugby league player, yeah, it was an amazing feeling. But personally, I was um, I was wondering what's going to happen next, just around the corner. If you remember. Um, 2001, I won a Dally M, and just around the corner, it wasn't real good. So I was a little bit worried about um, celebrating too much because if if I did, it might it might be taken away just yeah. as quick. Well, well, I'll go into 2002 in a second, um, and I know you've spoken about it a lot, but um, just you didn't have a drink on the night. You have you ever drank? You've never. Have you, yeah, uh, look, it's one of those things. Rugby league is really really hard. It's to not to drink, I went to I went I come to the Gold Coast in the late nineties. Not a drinker, you know. I, I didn't touch the stuff, but um, because there was so much of it around, it was it was a big part of the culture of playing rugby league. There's almost some the healthiest um, healthiest drinkers on the planet, <laughs> rugby league players. <laughs> so uh, back then, uh, compared to the end of my career, it was very very different. So I. I I got caught up in in the in the culture, the drinking. You know, I didn't drink a lot because I had a I had a family I had to go home to, but um, it was just one of those things. I, yeah, I just I didn't see the. Um, it was a bit of a novelty for me, you know. I didn't see why people drank so much. You, I don't, you don't drink now, do you? No, nah, no, nah, I'm not a drinker now. No, nah, I'm not a drinker now. But I'm not. Um, I'm not one of those fellows that judge people for drinking, you know. I can go out, I can still go out and, and enjoy it and, and look after people. And, um, you know, I think in the beginning it was just that um, bit of pressure, you know, you got from your teammates, come on, have a drink, have a drink. And, and you know, I succumbed to that pressure. But the older I got, um, the less the less I wanted wanted to drink, you know, and I just – the more I said no, the more more they respected that, you know. So it's one of those things that um, I, I don't know. A lot of people have to come to grips with, you know. I, yeah, I've never been a real big drinker, so I, I'm not missing much. Don't feel like I'm missing out on much. No. How long has it been since you had a drink, Eric? Oh, geez, it's been a number of years now. Yeah, it's it's yeah. Just don't even think about it. No, well, no. it's one of those things. Nah. It just becomes a habit. Yeah, you know, when you when you don't. 
when you don't have it, you just don't miss it, I, I guess. You touched on before 2001 and, and when things went um, pear-shaped for you. And I know, I know you have spoken about it a lot, so I don't want to get too bogged down in it because I think a lot of people do know your story. But for yep. the people that don't, um, so obviously you're playing first grade. You won the Dalian medal, as you said, and uh, you're at Cronulla, new, cha- new coach, change of kind of system. You fall out of favour. You're out of first grade. And then things take a, a bit of a sour turn for you personally. Just, I guess, if people don't know what kind of happened in that period of your life. Well, it was a bit of a sm- snowball effect, Jakey, I think. Um, you know, 2001 was like a breakout year for me. Yeah, I've, I played I played NRL in previous years, but that was the year that I, I'd probably come an household name. And I think a lot, a lot of... My situation had to do with, with my ego as well. You know, you this, this talk, this hype, Preston Campbell, how, how well he's going. Um, I got caught up in, in that as well. But I think the biggest thing for me and what people need to remember, uh, well, just think, you know, being told that you weren't going to be able to um, amount to anything, not just a game of rugby league, and always being told that you're too small and, you, and you're never going to do well. You know, so when you do well, um, and I don't think as an individual you can get any higher than the Dally M. You know, and I'm thinking, well, um, I've proven these people um, differently. You know, I hope I hope they know that small people can, or, or smaller people, doesn't matter whether you, um, you come from the bush or not, can do well. Um, and it was just a matter of, I guess understanding that I could I could I could do well if I work hard enough and, 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 and have belief in my ability. And I did that. And and two thousand and one is just an amazing year. There was things that our team done that we probably never thought we could do, you know? And it was just uh one of those years that just went really, really quick at the end of that year, two thousand two thousand one, Player of the Year. And then there was changes that come about. And I think the problems arose again because of my ego, and um, when when I was told I wasn't going to play halfback, it made me feel like I wasn't good enough, you know. So, yeah, and then they had a, another halfback in Brett Kamali coming in, who's an amazing rugby league player and a really good fella, you know. But that's not what I was thinking at the time. What I was thinking is this: this fella's telling me I'm not good enough, and I'd been told that, you know, for a lot of my footy career. And that's what I found difficult, and that's what I struggled with most, and and it was something that I, I made up in my my head. There's nobody else, nobody told me that I was not good enough, but that's what it felt like. So that's weird. I don't know if I've ever heard you talk about ego before, and, and I think the last thing that people think about when they think about Preston Campbell is ego. Yeah. But that was something that was there for you. Yeah. That's, yeah. I find that. Oh look, and it's one of those things. We all got an ego. It's just how we can how we keep it under control, really. And um, at that time, I was I was a lot younger, um, less mature, and it it did it did take over at times. And then having people in in my ears telling me what I should should shouldn't be doing, you know, it was difficult. And I just I just I just wanted to get away from it all, you know. Um, so that year wasn't the best year for me. I, I just I just walked around the club. I did what I needed to do. I, I actually got really fit. I worked really hard, and in the in the New South Wales Cup, we fell one game short of the grand final. You know, so we actually did all right. Um, but I just didn't feel like playing footy. 
Mm. Because I was going to say, like, Daly M player of the year playing New South Wales Cup yeah. next year, that mentally took a toll on you then. It, it did. It did. I mean, and look, I played rugby league because I just didn't want people to really know what was going on, really how I felt. You know, I didn't want to play rugby league, but I did just because um, I had a contract and I was just rolling with the punches. You know, did what I needed to do, but not actually wanting to do it. You know, and that was that was a struggle. You know, I think back now, you know, if I was actually um, going out and playing footy with purpose, um, because I did have an opportunity to play in our role that year, I played the first seven or eight games, seven or eight rounds um, at Uka, and and I just I just didn't enjoy it. You know, if I I'm thinking if I went out with a different attitude, you know, went out different mental it might might have been different for me but yeah it just didn't work out that way and like I said it was a snowball effect the uh, the effect that footy had on me you know I took it home I took it into my relationships with my family and friends and um, alienated my life basically and it, it just yeah it was one of those times where again like I learned so much from it now but it's one of those times where I think a lot of people tend to get into and don't aren't able to find their way out of. Mm. So, when you said you alienated your family, that's when you you had a a breakdown in your relationship and and basically you decided at at one point mm. you didn't want to live anymore. Yeah, and look, and that's that's unfortunately where a lot of a lot of situations like that end up, you know. And for me, it was through the lack of understanding about why I was feeling the way I was feeling. And again, egos come into play because I'm feeling these certain um, feelings and not understanding why, you know, and it just, um, it made me more frustrated. It made me angrier, the fact I didn't, I couldn't understand why I was crying, you know, and why I was feeling feeling like I wanted to punch, punch walls in, you know. So it was frustrating and it just, it just got a little bit too much, you know, and that's what people talk about uh, when they're in a situation like this. Things just become overwhelming and they just want that feeling to stop, you know, and, for, and unfortunately that's, that's, um, that's a way that a lot of us, you know, want that feeling to stop, you know. So I thought, um, you know, it'd be better off if, if I wasn't around. The world would be a much better place and I just wanted these feelings to stop and that was the only way I felt I can do it. Yeah, because there was no no education or awareness around um, around um, depression or anxiety in the game, you know, in in society in general. So um, after all of that had happened, you know, I was diagnosed as being clinically depressed, and I didn't even know what that meant, you know. And it wasn't until I sat down, understood what it was, I actually understood what I needed to do to be able to get past them feelings. So yeah, that led to. So I think multiple times you tried to take yeah. your life. Yep. So my first attempt was in 2002. It was a few days before Christmas. Um, as you mentioned, like I, I had a breakup from from my partner and she'd left. You know, we were in Penrith at the time. She moved up to Ballina with her parents. So I'd gone up a few days before Christmas to give the young ones their gifts, presents, and I guess hoping that I could rekindle, you know, a little, little fire. But... Um, you know, once I got the Ballina, I just, I just realised that, you know, I, I burnt that bridge with my partner and, and it was, 
and that was it. You know, if I couldn't, if I couldn't be with her, if I couldn't be with my my family, what's the point of um, playing footy? What's the point of uh, being around anymore? You know, because they don't need me. Yeah, so 2002, I think it was the 22nd, 23rd, um, I drove my car into a tree, hoping that I wouldn't wake up, you know, and that was that was something that was difficult to tell people in the beginning because it's um, it's one of those things that is pretty raw. You know, I still try to work out the best way to tell my story because some people, you know, because it's so sensitive, some people just don't know how, how to take it. You know, in the beginning I, I thought, well, you just tell the story the way it was, um, you're going to be able to help more people. And that was the case. Um, but I think there's a there's a story I can tell that's less less raw, um, a little more sensitive, that's that's also being able to help people. And that's just, just me. I've been able to, it's just been me being able to work out what kind of story, um, well, which way I tell the story, if that makes any sense. But, you know, after that first attempt, it really... It didn't make anything better. It made things worse. If anything, I woke up in the hospital and just, um, oh, oh, sorry, I woke up in a helicopter thinking, you know, you idiot, what are you doing? I just felt so stupid, you know. And then by the time I got to the hospital, I was already thinking about ways to take my own life because, again, I just didn't want to be around. And what happened from there after that? So I spent three days in Lismore Base Hospital. Um Got a phone call from my cousin, lived in Nambucca Heads, and he said he was going to come pick me up, take me home. Went back to Penrith. They spent a week with me, and it was good. You know, it was good be- them being with me and um, kind of just recovering from, from my injuries because I busted up, busted myself up a little bit. And then, then him and his little family left. You know, here I am in this house all alone again, you know. So that was, that was when I started to think about... Um, well, when and and how, you know, so a few weeks have gone by, I'm, I'm doing my recovery, doing my training, um, and just one day, um, on a day off, I I woke up and just started crying, looked at the ceiling and I just started crying, and and I sat sat up, looked on, on my bedside table and there's these packets of painkillers, you know, obviously from, from the injury, um, got up. Walked up and down my my aisle for hours. Would have felt like hours. And I'd gone back in, sat on the side of the bed, and I then I grabbed the tablet, threw it down. I grabbed another one and I threw it down. And and I thought, this is it. Yeah, I just couldn't stop. Yeah, you know, I, mean, I got a knock on the door. Um, and I thought, who the hell's this? You know, I had no plans. And as I mentioned before, and you know, everybody that I knew, um. Well, they just wasn't around, and I didn't want to be around people, so I had no idea who was at the door. So I left it for about five minutes, and then then I threw another one down, and then knock on the door again. And I, and I don't know why I got up, and I went to the door and opened it up, and there's Johnny Lang standing at the door. I said, say, hey, coach. Um, and he didn't say too much. You know, he basically just went like that. <laughs> Um, and, and said, let's go for a ride. You know, I was still in my pyjamas and didn't didn't ask any questions. I went and got changed, jumped in the car, and, and that was it. He drove me in to see a, see a counsellor, um, see a psychologist. And it was one of those things uh, I'd tell people that 
it was something that I needed internally. My my body was saying that I needed it, and you know, as soon as I sat down with that with the counsellor, um, first thing that she said, it was almost like. She knew exactly what it was I was going through, and I and I arced up a little bit, and I said, and I said, "How the hell do you know that?" You know, and it, it kind of made me, and I started crying again, and it just it was like a, um, like this f- warm flush. It just it was like a weight went off my shoulder. Yes, somebody knows how I, how I feel, you know, and that was the beginning. You know, it wasn't wasn't like things just happened like that. Um, it it took me years. Yeah, and it's still still taking me um, times where you know I do have my worries, my stresses, um, but I'm able to manage it in a way that's that's more more appropriate, more more responsible around it. You know, yeah. where back then I wasn't wasn't appropriate, wasn't responsible. If I felt mad, if I felt angry, I'd punch a hole in the wall, or I'd swear at somebody, and you know, um, I just knew that. No, 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 now what I was doing was just pushing people away. I spoke to Joel Thompson. He said the same thing when he – well, on this podcast, but he said he went through when he first went and saw someone and they basically – she said this woman just read out, just basically recited to him what kind of person he was without yeah. knowing him at all. And yeah. he just by what he told, like a few things, and she was, he was like, how do you know that about me? And it's like they, they just – this stuff is so common that they – they know and they can tell you what's wrong with you, but so many people don't go and say, oh, this is what's going through my head. And I've seen you – I know I've heard that story a few times and we've, we've spoken about it a few times, but it never kind of ceases to amaze me, I guess, how open you are, but also you know, what you went through and, and how far you've come now. And, and that's where I kind of want to go is, is take it forward a bit now. When you, where you are in your life now – do you look back on that point in your life and does it make you, I don't know, do you feel guilty? Do you feel angry that you maybe even might have robbed yourself of everything you have now? I did I did in the early days and it's just one of those things, you know, um, acceptance is a massive thing when when you, I don't know if recover is the right word or when you're coming back from something like that, you know, and, and that's one thing that I was able to do over time except really what was going on and why and, and the help of counsellors and the help of um, friends and family helped me understand um, that it is normal and it is very common. Um, but forgiveness is, is another thing, you know. It took me even longer to forgive myself for it, you know. And there was a lot of times where I blamed so many other people, made excuses for, for other people um, or made excuses for the reason, for what the way I was feeling, and I blamed so many other people for the way I was feeling. But um, and that was the thing that I, I felt most difficult to get get past, you know. And I needed to forgive myself for that, and and I was able to do that. And I think it's it's half the reason why I do what I do now. You know, usually people go into something that they're passionate about, and it's usually something that they've experienced, and. Um, when we when we look more into mental health space or health, mental well being space, it's something that um, it's pretty scary. It's a pretty scary space. But um, at the end of the day, the thing that that got me through what I needed to go through was obviously understanding. Um, but it was through conversation, talking, you know, and that was my medicine. 
was talking and it was just it's one of those things what that we don't realize as as human beings we yearn interaction and one of the easiest ways to interact with somebody is yarn is talk you know when we talk about aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people um connection is something that's so so massive it's whether it's connection with with land and country um connection with with the animals and then connection with our with each other and that's something that I was missing that connection and um once I started to get that back I started to feel stronger you know and um that's that's one thing I at the end of the day that I've learned that's so important so important in life we need to be connected what about you talk about connection and, and you tell your story to a lot of people but what about telling your story to your own children like how have you kind of approached that that and then when the years when they've gotten old enough to kind of understand what you went through I guess was that more difficult oh look I try not to talk too much like even with my intermediate family I'd never spoken to them ever about it you know they they understand what that I've gone through something um but they don't know the story and the same same as my kids, they don't know the story. They know I've been through something. They know it's important that if you're struggling, you do what do what Dad did and seek help. Yeah. You know, but in the ways of telling my stories and how it actually all happened, no, we haven't sat down. It's just one of those things. I don't, I don't know um, if I'll ever tell them. Yeah. You know, if they ask me, yeah, I'll I'll share it with them. But if I have to um, hang on to it, I'll, I'll hang on to it. Um, one of the strange things I, I, I think well 2013 is when I first came out and let people know exactly what had happened um, 11 years before uh, only reason I come out is that you know, we lost two young boys um, that was involved in, in the game in the system to suicide and really I didn't know where it was going to go because I'd never told anyone my story um, so, I'd, so I'll give it a go I don't know how it's going to go, but and where it's where it's going to end up. But I, I started to tell my story, and um, it, they had they had one of those segments on on the footy show about mental health, and you know after that show, my my phone was blowing up, phone calls and and messages. You know, what the hell's going on? Are you okay? And I had to explain. No, this happened eleven years ago. You know, because nobody actually knew. Only only a handful of people knew what I'd gone through and not even my mum, my dad, my brothers and sisters knew knew that I went through what I went through. Really? Mm. Oh, wow. I never knew that. No, nobody knew. And because it was just something that I needed, I don't know, I just, people don't need to know. You know, I think that that's the case for a lot of, a lot of people that go through something like this and get through the other side. Um, I was happy living my life and just doing, but you don't realise the impact. Um, also, you don't realise how many people actually go through what you went through. I went through it and I just got on with life. But you don't realise how many people actually are struggling with with, um, with anxiety, depression, you know. And I guess um, in 2013 I realised the impact that my story had on, on the community and then on individuals. But you don't realise that because you just want to – you want to – you want to make sure you don't fall into that place again and you just want to live your life, you know. So um, it's not something I ever thought I'd get into, you know, but I, I know I know I, I enjoy it because 
there's that connection, you know. I know how important that is. I want to go back a little bit further. Um, I saw an interview recently. You sat down with uh, Dino Witters. Yeah. He's a cousin of mine and obviously I know a good friend of yours. Um, and you spoke about when you were younger – uh, having an identity crisis yep. when you you grew up in in Tinga, which is a small community. Uh, best I don't know best way to describe it, but it's outside of Inverell, yep. New South Wales, and a big Aboriginal community. Um, and but you spoke about not feeling like you're an Aboriginal man. You had an identity crisis, and when you were young, and I, I guess that's a, a thing a lot of kids go through. It might not be being Aboriginal. It might be just yeah. you know, people have. Identity crisis. Well, well, yeah. Explain to me what what that meant for you. Oh, look, we we didn't have a TV in the house until I was about eleven. You know, so being out, um, we did we'd go hunting, we'd go swimming, and this is something that Aboriginal people done for years. You know, but I didn't realise that at the time. But I guess once we did get a TV and and we got to see what what Aboriginal people did up north. You know, that's what I thought I needed to do in order to be Aboriginal. You know, but because um, we didn't have that sort of stuff, we didn't have that side of culture, the traditions, the the ceremonies, and the celebrations. Um, in that way, I, I struggled to believe I was Aboriginal. And look, Tinga's one of those places, and you know, it's where there's a high population of, of welfare. And unfortunately, and that's something, you know, I'm third generation welfare. I grew up with that. And it's something that um, when you're in it, you don't realise you're in it. You know, if it's something that you, or it's all you know, you don't know anything else. And I, I was one of those followers that, again, um, when I saw people drinking, it always, always, they always ended up in a fight. You know, there was a fight. Um, there's these relationships that, that were just wrecked for years and years and years, you know. You have family members that don't talk with each other, but um, if it meant, if Aboriginal meant that I had to fight and drink and do drugs, I didn't want to do that, you know, because I, I saw the damage that it did in our communities. And look, I was lucky to grow up um, with a family that, you know, did go to church at one time, you know, so I, understand, I understood that people could get together, have a great time, and not have to drink, you know. Where, looking back now, I understand why people people had to drink, had to do drugs. You know, this is their way of um, dealing with with the issues, with the with the stresses in their lives. You know, but back then, um, as I mentioned, it's not something I wanted to do because I, you know, it it took it took my uncles and and my aunties. You know, at the end of the day, and that's something that still a lot of our communities don't understand. You know, if somebody gets a heart attack, has a heart attack, they die of a heart attack. They don't die because they've been drinking or they don't die because they've been doing drugs. They die because they had a heart attack, you know. but And that's something that, um, you know, I hope that uh, the mindset changes around. Um, it's really, really difficult to talk to family about these about these issues because if, if they don't understand and, and you're trying to help out, it's um it's really really hard. Yeah. Know? Um, lateral violence is a is a big thing in our community, and it could turn quickly. Yeah. But I know there's a lot of our mob out there that that struggle, you know, with their mental health. Yeah. And then, yeah, they they lost connection somewhere, whether it's with something or with with the land or 
whatever it is, they lost connection somewhere. And the only way they, they feel like they can get through it, only thing they can connect with, or only way they can connect with people is when they're drinking, is when they're on drugs, unfortunately. Mm. We want, I want to get to the work you've done in the community and, and the way you're trying to change those cycles for Indigenous people um, in just a sec. But I also want to just quickly touch on uh, Tinga as a community has its issues, but it's produced some footballers. Oh, yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. So, what, Nathan Blacklock, um, Bevan French, yourself, like for a tiny little community, and I, there's a lot of Indigenous communities that have some some pretty unreal footballers, don't they? Yeah. Oh, look, yeah, places like, like Tumala too, it just has this, and, and Moree, it just has this um, this stable of, of just talent. You know, you look at your McGrady's, for for an example, it's just an amazing amazing pool of talent, you know. But you know, Tinga in particular, we were lucky to to grow up with with rugby league. You know, that's all it was, um, and that's what everybody associated with. And again, you know, we talk about connection and having having um, something that's common in our communities. Well, rugby league is one of those things, and for for most of it, it's very very positive um, celebration. You know, it's a very positive gathering, depending on if you win or lose. <laughs> you know, some of those, those bush footballers can get a bit wild, but um, it means a lot. It means a lot to our communities, rugby league. And I think um, you don't realise, um, like you love playing it, uh, you like representing your community, but you don't realise that you could actually make a living from it. You know, growing up in a place like Tinga, you don't realise that until somebody like Owen Craigie goes away and um, tries to forge your career in rugby league. You know, Owie was really the first bloke that set the – well, he set the bar, Owie. He went to Newcastle. He he played for Newcastle, 97, and won a grand final, you know. And not too long after that, fellas like um, Nathan Blacklock and Peter Ellis went to the Roosters, um, both played in the NRL, um, both very successful in the NRL. Then you have people like myself. Um, he went down, and then you have Bevan French. You know, so Tinga's Tinga's one of those places that always had had like talented rugby league players. You know, my 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 uncles, my cousins, they could all play football. Um, but it's just the opportunity, and and understand and realizing that you could leave Tinga and be a professional sports person. You know, you. Until you until you get out of out of the place, you don't realise what opportunities are for you out there. And it's one of those things, I guess. Rugby league's given me so much. It's given given um, boys like Owie and and Nathan plenty. But it's just one of those things that um, I guess not a, not a lot of people in Tingo actually see. If that makes any sense. I mean, there's plenty of opportunities around. Even when I was living in Tinga, there's there's plenty of work opportunities around there, but you you can't see it. You can't see it whilst you're there living in living in that situation. I I think the first time I ever saw you in person uh, was at a a Koori knockout, and you were playing for Tinga. Yeah, and you would have still been playing, obviously, first grade then. And what amazed me is just the the kind of the people that were around you, the amount of people that came up to say hello, to get photos, kids, like you just were never alone at any point. And then I remember seeing you over the years that you go and watch your son play for, for Helens Vale in the junior league and there was always people 
around you asking for your time. And I know that's uh, a common thing for athletes, but you're kind of known as someone who's always so humble, always so patient and has so much time for people. And where does that come from? Um, again, talk about connection, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's about giving people time. Um, sometimes it's just allowing people to do what they need to do, if that makes any sense. Um, somebody wants to tell you, you know, um, something about their lives, you know, and it's about just taking that time. I've, it's been, been a lot easier for me and it's one of those things, I guess, um, understanding that if is that something that you avoid, um, you know, people people look at you at a different light. You know, I I come through come through um, the game where some pretty uh, what's more famous people celebrity was a big thing, um, and I saw saw these celebrities that didn't take the time. They didn't sign autographs. They didn't stop to, to say hello or didn't stop to take photos. And people people just didn't like them, you know. And they they hid away from, from the footy world. They, and when they did come out, it was like it was like um, the rarest animal on, on earth, you know. They get swarmed. And I, 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 th- I thought early on if I just was out in community doing the stuff that needed to be doing, I'd just become part of the community. You know, and people respect you for that, and it has. I mean, I've just become become part of the furniture. You know, the more I spent out there, the more people used got used to me. And you know, somebody says, "Oh, look, there's Preston Campbell over there." Then the person next to him say, "Oh, yeah, he's out all the time." You know, and I yeah. just <laughs> I just get left alone. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where if if I'm if I'm if I'm in the room or if I'm at home and and I go out rarely, that's oh, there's Preston Campbell. Let's go over and see him. You know, so like it still happens. I still have people come up yarning, wanting photos and autographs, but not as much as I did when I was when I first shot onto the scene. You know what I mean? So it it goes away, it goes away. But I've been able to handle it. I've been able to deal with it in where other fellas couldn't. You know, and again, to be able to deal with that sort of stuff, people drank and they did drugs. You know, but I found if I just connected with 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 the footy fans or the footy world. Uh, it'd be so much easier, and I didn't need drinking. I didn't need drink to to be able to connect with them. Tell me about your, your killing with kindness mantra, because I spoke to Cody Walker recently on this podcast, and he said he's speaking about how what an inspiration you were to him, and and how he spoke about when you were coming through. You know, you had to kill him with kindness. You had to be nice in a world that might not have been nice to you just to to kind of change people's attitudes and I remember a conversation I had with my my mum one day I was feeling a bit disillusioned with work and um just kind of you know because I can work in a I work in the media and that can be uh, it can be an ugly industry times and I remember feeling a bit disillusioned a couple of years ago and 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 I was telling mum about it and she said she goes I ran into Preston last week and I and I at work and I was telling him and and Preston said to me, he said something, and it's something that stuck with me. You, you said, well, you can't change it from the outside, can you? Mm. So, you know, stay in the inside, be different. Yeah. Be the difference that you want to see. And yeah. that's really stuck with me. Is that that's something you've always kind of pushed on? And I imagine it would have been hard for you to be kind sometimes. Oh, yeah, definitely. And it's one of those things that um, – and, look, how we respond to things is very, very important. Yeah, and I always go back to 2002 or 2001 
when I had that conversation with Chris Anderson. You know, um, things could have been so much more different if if I'd have, um, if I'd have took that in a more more appropriate way. You know, it's it's one of those things that I've learnt over time to just, just for people that don't know. So Chris Anderson was coach of the Sharks, yeah. and and he so he was the one who moved you out of position, and yeah. and, and the conversation kind of went along the lines of of how what like what was said. Well, so so we were at Coogee. Um He was coaching Australia at the time. I went in, sat in the cafe, and his specific words, like it was, the exact words, were, "We just signed Brett Kamali." You're going to be playing hooker, you know, and that's that's the way it went. After that, it just went quiet for me. Everything else said after that was, well, I didn't hear it, really. So it was Chris Anderson, but it's one of those things. Like Chris and I, we 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 met. It was actually the first All Stars. I caught up with Chris again, you know, and I actually went up to Chris and I said, "Thank you, thank you for helping me realise what rugby league's about. It's a team sport, um, and thank you." Um, for for reminding me of that, you know, and it was one of those things. And he and he, he actually said, he said, mate, it was nothing personal, you know. And back then it felt personal. He said, I come in, I, I got paid. Um, my job was to win premierships, and that was the best way I thought we could win a premiership. You know, you weren't ready to be halfback. You got a bloke here that's um, experienced. He's he's won a competition. He's played for New South Wales and Australia. And he was a he was a bloke that I thought could could help us get that premiership, and I totally understood all of that, yeah. you know. So, Chris, Chris and I, I hope to think or feel that we're good. You know, I see him all the time. We have a good yarn. You know, he's a good follower, and I realised that back then I hated him. Mm. You know, but it wasn't until I, you get to understand why people did do what they do, um, is that you can understand why they did it. You know, and I, and I'm I'm I accepted that. You know, I accepted that. But it was just – sorry, what were we talking no, about? No, we were talking about killing them kindness. So yeah, yeah, you've gone yeah, from, yeah. And that, from that that's it. Yeah. To, to now a person that I think – even before this conversation started, we were talking about how you try to understand the opinion of people like Pauline Hanson, Andrew Bolt, people that disagree with you fundamentally on pretty much everything Yeah, and kind of stand for the things you fight against and – but you still try to see their perspective. You still try to understand it. Yeah, man. Look, You've come I, so far. I think that's something that helps me, also. And look, it's easy for people to get angry, and I can totally understand why they're angry. And and for a lot, for a big part of it, they should be angry, you know. And there are times where, where what, and it doesn't mean I don't get angry. It's just the way I deal with it, the way I handle it. You know, you could you can get angry and you could respond in a way that's not not appropriate. You know, so. Um, you know, I have my own rules that I set for myself. You know, and one of those rules is um, you can't change somebody's view on you in five minutes. So there's no point in yelling and screaming, at, get, uh, trying to justify who you are, you know, and trying to justify why you do what you do. Um, you have people that they've got their view, their opinion of you, and it's been grown for years. So you're not going to change their view on you in five minutes. So save your energy. You know, save your breath. And it's just one of those things I've learnt over time to, to respect people's views and their opinions, whether it's about me or about our issues. Yep. Um, you know, it's not my responsibility to, to educate them. Oh, sorry, it is my responsibility to, to educate them, but I'm not going to be able to do it in five minutes. Yep. You know, so 
killing with kindness was where it's a it's a journey. Spending enough time with somebody and just talking talking to them and helping them realise why I do what I do. Helping them realise why Indigenous people do what they do. You know, and more often than not, they start to understand um, why why our mob is so incarcerated and why our mob, um, you know, the, our health or our 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 lives are cut so short. You know, and then people gen- generally and look, I think for most of us as human beings, we want to help people. You know, and when you understand why people go through what they do, you start to feel, is it empathy or sympathy? Sympathy. So you, st- you start to feel sympathetic and you want to help out where you can. Now, so I, I live by um, a few principles and it's a brother boy, from Milroy man from Tamworth. Uh, he talks about respect, responsibility and reciprocity. You know, and these things that, that work with each other, none comes before not one comes before another. It's it's hard to explain, but at no, the end of the day, it, yep. respect is something that um, I'll always give, whether I get it or not, in return. So re- that reciprocity, even if I don't get that that respect, I have to respect somebody, you know, because after a while, the more I keep respecting them, I'll they'll start to respect me, you know, kill them with kindness, and it's just that responsibility. Again, um, there are certain things I'm responsible for. I'm not going to stand again and talk to somebody you know, about why we who we are and why uh, I do what I do. You know, um, that's not my responsibility. It, for me, it's a it's a longer longer journey because um, we we don't we don't talk enough about these. Um, when we talk about culture in indigenous in the indigenous world. You know, we talk a lot about our traditions, our customs, but we don't talk about that enough. You know, respect, responsibility was a big part of our culture, who we are, you know. Um, we respected the land, we respected each other, um, and we're responsible for the land, responsible for each other. But where a lot's been missing now is that reciprocity, you know. We give so much to each other, but we don't, oh, sorry, we take so much from each other, but we don't give enough. You know, and that's something that, again, I talk about connection. That's what real connection is, respect, responsibility and reciprocity. So that exchange of um, energy or exchange of, of whatever it is, you know, the exchange or the balance of give and take. You know, so I've found that no matter what level I'm working at or what level of rugby league I'm playing, I played local football. And, you know, I didn't have any problems playing rugby league. You know, because and because I because I respected the game so much, I respected my opposition so much. You know, I'd have people from the uh, other side calling me all sorts of names. Even people from their team, their teammates, are saying, "Mate, don't say that to him. That's not you know, don't don't treat him like that." But if an, if they called somebody else the same thing, they'd be they'd be joining them. Uh, but because but because I respected him, um, he respected me. You know, and it was one of those things that um, that I was I always carry. You know, something that I always lived with after I, I went through what I went through. Because mm. there was no respect, there was no responsibility when I was going through what I was going through. There was no respect before that, no responsibility before that. So I understand all of that now. Why it's important, and this concept of like I'll only respect you if you respect me. 
that's that's a cop out, you know, because if you don't respect me, I'll I'll respect you only when you respect me, and it's vice versa. We're never going to respect each other, you know. So if I'm if we need to teach people how to respect. That's an amazing mantra, yeah. And I think uh, you're right. A lot of people need to to f- to follow that, and uh, the world would be a yeah, better no, I place. Can understand but, why that? But yeah, that yeah, absolutely. And it comes back to what you said before about ego and yeah. all these things. You just people don't. Yeah, you know, it's it's human nature. Yeah, to to Definitely. be angry. Um, and it's not something. And I tell people, anger, frustration, being mad. It's all normal stuff. I'm not saying don't do it. It's just how you respond to that. You know, it's how you manage it. And unfortunately. We see a lot of our young boys and girls in jails or being suspended or expelled because somebody's called them something, offended them and hurt them, made them angry, and they've responded in a way that's not good for them. You know, so they'll punch them or, 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 or what, whatever. They'll be there having a yelling match. It's not the way to do it, you know, and I've been able to work up this, um, this I don't know if you want to call it strength, you know, because I still cop it. I still cop it from community. Um where you don't brush it off, like it still hurts, it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It's just the way you you deal with it that makes a massive difference, you know. And I've been able to gain respect for that because um, people have seen me cop rubbish, you know. But when you just keep going, you keep going, you, you tend to get people on your side because um, they know sometimes um, it's not the right thing to do to, to call somebody that name or or to treat somebody like that yeah i i take your hat my hat off to you the, the way you've kind of adopted that mantra it's it must have been tough at times to 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 let those things go by and i know a lot of people don't oh, but, yeah. Yeah. um we'll move on to, to to the part of your career where you, you moved to the titans and obviously you are had success there you almost got to the grand finals you said before but i think off the field is it fair to say the Titans is where you really took what you were doing off the field to another level where you started to get involved with the the, the community arm, started pushing a lot of the things. And, and that's, uh, I guess, the reason we know each other is because of a, a program you're involved with, the Titans, yep. Titans for Tomorrow at the time, and got me a cadetship when I was first starting out. And, you know, that helped me get my job where I am now and what I'm doing now. So And it, it had that effect on a lot of kids Tell me how I guess where where it started at the Titans, what you what you started to do and, and how you started to use the the club, I guess, to 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 achieve some of these goals that you had. I think you find that this sort of stuff happens in most clubs, you know, but to the to the level the Gold Coast Titans were doing it at the time, I don't think there is anybody doing it. And look, it was because of the club allowing that to happen and, and allowing that to grow um organically was 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 amazing. You know, they they offered um, a platform to, um, or they they joined the conversation around Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander issues, you know. So whether whether it was young kids um, struggling to get through school and finish school and then move on to other opportunities after school, or whether it was stuff around the mental health, um, they were always open to, to support that. And I think that that was the biggest things, uh, one of the more important things um, with community stuff is that the club actually they were passionate about it as well and that's why um you know people like michael sell i know there's a lot spoken about michael sell but he was a guy that changed so much or changed um 
change the the face of community stuff in in rug you know, in rugby league clubs, but he's changed so much throughout the game as well. You know, so he's he's a forward thinker, but he was also very very passionate about the people. You know, the um, people. When I say people, the the players, um, the people at the clubs, and and the supporters. You know, so it was it was easy to do work at the Titans because they they allowed it and they were very very open to it. And what about then? And they sorry they they wanted to understand they wanted to understand why we did the things we did. Yeah. And then once they understood, um, they understood the importance of it, and that's why they were so important. Ah, sorry, so supportive. Yeah, and, and obviously they did a lot of great work, and it's it's kind of launched into what you do now um, with your own foundation. Um, tell me about the Preston Campbell Foundation and and what the the goal for you guys is. Well, I, I guess it's just a part of my my journey. Um, I'd never ever thought I'd I'd have a foundation that was named after me. You know, it's not something that you, you dream of doing. But um, after everything that happened at the Gold Coast, you know, the the community arm of the club at the time, T for T sort of fell away. You know, so I needed a job. You know, I needed to do something, and and we I decided. You know, I'm going to stay in community. It's just about how that looks. You know, so that's where the foundation come from. Um, we knew that T for T wasn't going to be around, so we needed to build something to um, build on the work that we, we'd already been doing. Yeah, and it didn't work out the way we wanted to. We've got a foundation and we're doing things. Um, it's almost like um, we have no idea what we're doing and sometimes it feels like that, but... I know, I know. Um, we enjoy what we're doing, and look, I don't, I don't even know what it is what we do. All I know is that we we try to get out in community, and you know, listen to their needs. You know, it's one of those things. The foundation is not about building new things; it's about going out and supporting the things that are already already going well in community. You know, so we want the Preston Campbell Foundation to add value to what is already going on out there. Because there's some, there's some amazing stuff and I think sometimes that's what we forget. We don't stop to celebrate the great things that we're doing. There's a lot of, you know, there's this narrative, all this negative stuff that's going on. We don't stop to celebrate the good things that we're doing. Yeah, and we don't, we don't have to be massive. If we've got little, our own little things going on here and there, you know, we're doing a great job. You know, it's one of those things that, um, I don't know, whether you want to call it the Western mentality, you know, the bigger they are, the more successful you are, we're, we're more successful when we're doing things together. And, yeah. and you were telling me before, but it's as well just about trying to get young kids to kind of to see, you know, they might not want to work in hospitality, they might want to, but they to kind of give them a direction as well and to try and kind of foster that motion because you've had that in your life. You said you yeah, know, yeah. when you finish – School, you're on welfare, and you didn't, you know. Once you finish rugby league, you didn't know what you were going to do. Like it's all about giving some young kids direction and trying to help them. Yeah, giving them an option, and, it, and look, it might not work out the first time, but it's about about the path, I, I guess. You know, them going into into study or whether they want to do do an hospitality course, whatever it is they want to be. Um, they might not have an idea, but it helps them come up with something. At the end of the day, they need to do something. They need to do something. Um, you know, my dad said to me when I left community, he said, if you want to stay in the community, that's fine. 
but you need to contribute to the community. You need to be of benefit to the community. If you go away, you need to do the same thing. You need to be benefit to that community. You have to be, make a contribution. And if that contribution means staying out of trouble, well, you benefit to the community, you know. And for a lot of our communities, it's there's nobody um, – we don't, we don't understand that. And again, um, for a lot of them, they don't – they don't understand the world that they're living in. You know, this welfare welfare world is is one that um, a lot of us are comfortable with. And look, it's it's um, it doesn't cause any harm, but it's unhealthy. If that makes sense, you know what I mean. Yeah, one of the best things in Tinga, just to go back on that, is was the CDP. You know, and I know it was work for the whole program, but at least the mob felt like they were contributing to the community. They worked alongside each other, and they were so proud of it. You know, the the effect that they had on each other, the fact that they were working with each other and making their community beautiful, it was a it was a great program for him. I know it was work for the Dole program, but it was something that um, that's missing from from Tinga. You know, um, now they still get paid, but nothing gets no, done in no Tinga. No working, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just something, yeah. It's a it's a complicated issue that a lot it of people have tried to figure out yeah. over the years, and like it's not. And look, the CDP is not a bad. I mean, being on welfare is not not bad. People need it. People need it. And you know, there was a stage time I needed it. You know, and I was very very um, thankful for that. But for a lot of people, it's, we can't get comfortable. We can't get comfortable with it because I look at Tinga. There's so much potential there. Mm. There is. There's, there's amazing potential, not just in sport, but um, now that I left the place, I look back there and there's like there's so much they can do, you know, so much benefit for the community. Uh, it's just a matter of, I don't know, people in the community wanting the same thing. Yeah, that's not just Tinga. There's a nah, lot nah, of mate. communities all around Australia. And that's one thing that I've yeah. found traveling. Yeah. You know, yeah, and you've yeah, you've been around everywhere. Uh, what about your other legacy, mate? When you we were talking about Indigenous Round last week. But the, the All-Stars, and we, we sat down with Josh Adokar and, and Cody Walker, and they spoke about you know, the All-Stars and what it means to them and how it's given such an identity to Indigenous players, Māori players in the game now. Um, and you must just be so proud when you, when you look at it that you, know, you were the driving force behind that, and it's now, what, 10 years old? Yeah. Uh, look, it's, it's come a long way. It... Um and again, it's one of those things that has sort of evolved over over time because All Stars in the beginning was just was about inspiring, and I know it still inspires people. Um, it was an opportunity for the boys to get together and represent their community and inspire our community. But more has come from it now. You know, there's more um, more awareness, uh, education around Indigenous people. You know, um, and and you know the Maoris are involved now. You know, so where it's come to, um, the inspiration. Um, and the and the opportunities and the potential, you know, is it's in a it's in a really good good space. Um, the thing that I'm most happy about is um, non-indigenous Australia are, are getting on board. You know, and it's one of those things that um, I think a lot of us would hope or hope would happen, and and it is. It's starting to do that. And again, it's a long journey. Um, killing people with kindness, um, allowing him an opportunity to um, understand who we are. You know? And again, 
it's taken some time, but people are starting to come around. They're supportive of, of what we're doing, you know, given where it was in the beginning. Like All Stars maybe could have been, couldn't, couldn't, oh, maybe couldn't have happened, you know. But where it's at now, it's, it's in the calendar, and I think it's going to be around for a long time. And what the game's been able to do um, is amazing. They've offered us a, a voice, and we need to respect that, you know. Um, we respect it by um, getting out and, and being good adverse advertisements for the game, you know, because the game's just going to keep giving us – keeps giving me stuff. I keep going out and, and – Preaching, preaching the word around, around everything that I do, um, and why I do it, and it's just one of those things that's constant. Because again, I, I, I love what I do, but I respect what I do. It keeps giving me stuff too, and yeah, and you're right. There, there's been so much change in the last ten years, and I, when I was speaking to those guys last week about Indigenous round, yeah, it's more now not just about celebrating talent of indigenous players or the multi players it's it's more about now what do they have to say you know what oh, yeah. what, what, what do we what do we want mm. to hear what do they what does what does the greater australian public need to know about us so we can all move forward and it lends a, it lends a voice yeah. it lends a voice and we do we do need to be be careful I and mean, we talk about those andrew bolts and those pauline ansons um, non-indigenous people think of us as that way as well you know look at these fellas we say just shut up you know so we have to we have to tell our story in a way that that um that is appropriate and it's not it doesn't look like we're um we we want to bite out bite bite too much take too much of a chunk out if that makes sense it's yeah, one no, of those things that um and it, and that's one thing that I, I, I it took me a while to understand you know if um if you want somebody to listen to you it's going to take time you got to get to know them um they got to get to know us you know, once that relationship's built and it's a bit stronger, and that way you start talking about the issues that we've been talking about. You know, and it is it has come a long way. Again, games lent lent its platform or given a voice to so many different issues. You know, indigenous issues, um, issues around mental health, domestic violence, same sex relationships. You know, and we need to respect that because they're they're actually putting a lot on the line. The game, you know, they're giving us this opportunity, um, so we need to understand that we need to we need to be appropriate about some of the things that we say. But in saying that, you need the hard eating stuff too. I look at Latrell and what he went through last year, you know, and the support that the game give him compared to um, Adam Goods. Adam Goods, yeah. yeah. You know, Latrell still playing. Adam didn't feel like he wanted to play there anymore. He got his support. And the AFL admitted they they got it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the club supported him. Yeah. But the the game didn't. Yeah, the game didn't. Yeah, absolutely. Something that he loved didn't love him back. Where I felt that looking at it from a distance, Latrell got that support from the game, you know. Um, And he seems like he's happier now. And look, there was times where, you know, I felt angry because of the stuff in the news, whether it was radio or or in the paper, they were just smashing Latrell, you know, because this is a man that was, you know, strong about who he is um, and people just didn't like the way he was talking. They thought he was a thought he was a goose, you know. Um, when was it? Was it a tweet or something on Instagram? Instagram, Blake, I think, yeah. Instagram. Somebody break his neck or something like that. Yeah, there's and, been some t- horrible stuff. And it, uh, I, don't, I won't name names, but it was a radio presenter 
ask the question, you know, is he just being a sook? Does he need to need to wake up? And say, I'm not, pretty sure you know what I'm talking about. And my first thought with that was, this fellow's not qualified to ask this question. And he did actually say, this is one person. He doesn't know if it was one person, you know. He doesn't know um, Latrell's situation. He doesn't know how much how much he's been been copping, you know. So to ask a question like that, he's not qualified to. Only fellow that's qualified to answer it is Latrell. We don't know what he's been through, and that that for me just told um, the whole story and that situation. You know, Latrell, Latrell, only lit in a way that was appropriate. But everything else around him, everybody else around him made it difficult for him, didn't they? And I did feel for him. I'm glad he's still playing the game. And he, uh, fellows like Cody, we need people because they are strong in their identity and they bring these issues to the forefront, you know. And, Absolutely. And again, I went a long way about saying it, but it's it's the game that's allowing these boys an opportunity to say say these things that um, mean mean so much to them. We do hope to uh, get Latrell on one day to to talk about these things and everything he's been through. And, and Presto, I could I could speak to you all day, mate, because it's just always so interesting and, and and such an important chat that needs to be had. Um, but I know you've you've got your, your grand fam, uh, grandchild, <laughs> and, and we're kind of keeping him out of the house. So we're just finished real quick on. Uh, we like to ask a couple of quick quick questions and some fun questions, and uh, see if you, what comes to your head. And I think I know the answer to this first question. But the first one is uh, the most famous person you've ever met. Famous person, yeah. Ooh, I don't know. There's some very famous. I, I, I think I know, and I, I, I think you've met the Queen, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. but I don't know if she's the most famous. Really? Yeah. <laughs> how can well, you she top- she'd probably be the most I was famous. Say, how are you yeah. going to top the Queen? I don't know. <laughs> Would David Beckham be up there? Oh, England. That yeah. Muhammad well, Ali. You met Muhammad Ali? Yeah. He's, yeah, You're freaky. kidding, really? He's freaky man. I I don't tell too many people. Well, this I could story, do a whole podcast on this, but um. Is 2012, um, myself and Mark DeWeed went to, went to England. So the NRL were actually up for an award for working community and we went over to represent the, the game. And it was just before the Olympics and they had this, this conference called Beyond Sport, which was basically using sport to make change. So we were, we were part of this conference over a few days, but on the last night they had, a pre, um, they had a, um, the awards night. And guys like David Beckham, um, Muhammad Ali was there, Michael Johnson was there, um, Francois PNR, wow. Jamie Oliver. So there were some amazing people there. So to be able to shake their hands and obviously somebody like Muhammad Ali who, who could barely talk. Mm. Um, like I just I just remember there's this there's this feeling. Um, they were talking about this person. And what he what he done as a sports person, and and what he's doing in the community, and I kind of knew it was Muhammad Ali, and then the next minute he's come out, and it was just an amazing feeling. So to be able to just just to say hello to him was a great feeling, you know. So I don't know, probably the Queen. Probably the Queen. I got a funny it? story about the Queen though. It's um, like I like my tea. Your tea. Yeah, yeah. stand in front of us. You know when you put sugar in and you sort of. Stir it up, yeah, but, yeah. You, but you click the sides. Yeah, and I got this. I got this look from the queen because I was making a lot of noise. It was almost like, <laughs> "What are you doing?" And I was like, "Then I started to stir it really, really slow." But I, I don't know. Let's say the queen. 
Let's say the truth. I, I, look, that Queen's hard to top, but I didn't know you met Muhammad Ali. Yeah, that's, man, he's awesome. That's pretty amazing. And yeah, David Beckham as well. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you could do. I see. You could do a whole podcast on those guys alone. Um, well, I was going to ask the, the most famous or random person you ever saw in a football locker room. Oh, famous. You know, people have to come into the locker rooms. You get the odd kind of. Mark Ocalupo. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, being on the Gold Coast, you got a lot of surfers. A lot of coming surfers through. coming yeah. in. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so Parco was there. Um, yeah, so, yeah, probably probably most random would be yeah. Mark Ocalupo. I spoke to uh, Kieran Jack, the uh, former Swans captain, and he he said once the Dalai Lama came in. Oh, really? The, the Dalai Lama? Yeah, the Swan shit. <laughs> well, actually, before All-Stars, um, Kevin Rudd. Come into the dressing shed. Okay, right, yeah. Yeah, I was half naked and he wanted to shake my hand. Oh, was he made, PM then or he was Prime Minister yeah. at the time. Yeah, so he, he came he came in. Yeah, that's a yeah. Yeah, okay. Mark Ocalupo Mark probably in surfers. Yeah. What about um most memorable? What about superstitions, mate? Did you have any as a player? Do you have any weird ones that your teammates no, saw? No, no, no weird ones. My thing was though on game day was just made sure I ate my muesli, my oats. You know, porridge. Every morning. Yeah, so it could be in the middle of summer. I had to eat my porridge. Yeah, so that was the only thing, um, game day situation. Nothing, no superstitions. No, because no, um, we've had some weird ones. Kieran Jack told me about uh, one of their guys in their team who had to brush his teeth right before they ran on. Oh, really? Yeah, so he was in the huddle and he's brushing his teeth yeah. just before he's about to run on. Um, Josh had a car has about a million. Really? He's got <laughs> left side all strapped one first, then right side. Can't put his boots on first. Has to put his jersey on after Kenny Bromwich. All oh, the, really? <laughs> all these weird ones. That um, is, that's too much to remember. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, what about uh, your worst habit? Um, you can ask my missus that one. Picking my nose. <laughs> yeah. yeah, picking my nose. <laughs> Well, this is something you've always done. Just, my nose, I, I get a lot of, I got a bit of air, bit of air in my nose. So it's probably not picking; it's just a bit of a scratch. And I, I, I break it some, well, one year I can't remember what year it was, but um, part of it has gone across and blocked it off. So it's just uncomfortable. I just stick my nose, uh, finger up there to just to move it around a little bit. <laughs> what about? Uh I, this is probably hard to top considering the people you have met, but uh, if you had three dinner guests off the top of your head, who would that mm. be? Yeah, that's a hard one. I'd like to spend more time with my grandfather on my dad's side. You know, I um, hear a lot about him, and when I when I did know him, I was too young to sort of appreciate it. Mm-hmm. would be nice for him to sit down, sit down with him. Um, Nelson Mandela. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I just, I just, just his principles. It'd be just good to have a look at what, what sort of stuff that he, um, why he thought he did, the way he did. Mm-hmm. That's a hard one. I might have to get somebody that's that's living. Yeah, that's was it three? It, it is yeah, difficult three. Yeah, because yeah. it's yeah. if you got someone who's yeah. currently alive. I I don't know. I don't know. That's yeah. That that is a hard one. I, I know Nelson Mandela. And, and my grandfather are definitely two that that I love at the dinner table. Um, the fact that you, you met Muhammad Ali and you met the Queen—that's probably yeah. That's more than yeah, most people hard. get in a lifetime. Uh, what about? Uh, did you have a 
someone you hated playing against? Was there a particular player that you just looked down and said, oh, I don't want to play against him today? Or Well, anybody that was bigger than me. <laughs> well, Wendell was one of those fellas. Yeah. It's, it's funny, the first time I played against Wendell, I think he just fell over for me a few times. I grabbed him around the ankles, he just fell over. But uh, somebody like him, I hated him because he was so big and he was, he was so difficult to bring down. You know, I, I don't, I don't, I never hated anybody I played against, you know. Like I said before, I always respected them. But in the ways of somebody that had, had great ability and been on, on the wing, Wendell Saylor. Wendell was Saylor. hard. He was hard. And anybody in the Warriors team in, in, the, in the late 90s, early 2000s, because they were so big. Yeah. <laughs> so big, giving away 40, 50 kilos. Yeah. Uh, just finally, mate, um, what are you most proud of? Everything you've done in your career after footy, what what stands out most for for Preston Campbell? Mm. Oh, just my family, I guess. Being able to stay with them and and just keep do, doing the work that I'm doing, you know. Um, I'm I'd like to think that I'm I'm level headed and I'm grounded. So I'm happy after after having a career like I did, and um, that I'm still able to do what I do at the level that I do, you know, I'm just glad that I'm still grounded. But that's um, that's because of family and the friends that I have around me. Yes, and family's always been important to me um, and it's something that I guess at the end of the day um, is is most important. Yeah. So I'm, I'm proud of my family. That's a great answer and I think a, a great note to finish on, Presto. Uh, thanks for your time, mate. You're always so giving with it, and um, I know a lot of people. A lot of people have asked us to get you on, so you know you're an inspiration to a lot of people, mate. So I think uh, always a great chat, and I think a lot of people will really enjoy listening to that. Uh, so thanks for your my time, pleasure, mate. We'll have to do this again yeah, soon, mate. Always. Thank you. Thanks for having me in your home. No worries, Jakey. Thanks for listening, guys. We've got plenty more episodes coming your way very soon. Don't forget to follow the Refuse to Lose podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Mm-hmm.